welcome to Sellersburg United Methodist Church podcast, where we bring our mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world to you, wherever you are. We come to our first Sunday of Lent, and we enter into this 40 days with a different approach to our faith. We take the stillness, the silence, we break our routine. We mimic the 40 days that Christ spent in the wilderness, which is an echo of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness back in the Exodus story. And we examine ourselves. We break from the routine that we've been living in to confront and examine ourselves and our relationship with God, our relationship with one another and the earth. We do this as individuals and we as a church do this together because as the body of Christ, we need to re-examine who we are and where we are with God. We enter into a series that's called Rend Your Heart, Claiming the Promise. And it's two sides of the process. Rending your heart is tearing your heart open, breaking it for God. And then we claim the promise. There's the the hard part, the death, the humbling. And then there's the joy and the promise. And we bring both of those together in Lent because we need both. We're going to spend the next six weeks on this journey, and the end of the journey will be Easter morning, and we will experience the empty tomb and the resurrected Jesus Christ, but this journey ends there, and in the meantime, travels along a road of examining ourselves, of rending our hearts, travels to a cross where there is death. There is difficulty, but we do so knowing where the story ends. We will rend our heart through this time together because it's the very means through which we claim the promise. It's only through death that we come to the resurrection. And we need this church. We need this time. It'd be real easy for us to just skip ahead to the claiming the promise and the good part, but we need the rending. And we often get focused on maybe one more than the other. Maybe we're focused on rending to the point where we feel so distant from the promise or we're so caught up in the promise that we have stopped rending our heart. And the prophecy that we heard in the book of Joel, it's made clear, four points. I want to go over these four points and then I want to talk about how these four points speak to us and our situation and our Lenten practice today, both as individuals and the church, because it's important that we know some things about God as we seek to rend our hearts for God and to God. So Joel makes four things clear. Number one, a real threat is upon the people Israel. Scholars debate whether it's an army or all the metaphoric language about locusts isn't metaphoric and is literal, and there's a swarm of locusts coming to destroy the land, the crops, to leave the people without food. I mean, an army will do the same thing as the locusts. Either way, the threat is real. This is going to be cataclysmic, devastating, complete uh, devastation. Um, It's going to be an absolute in nature. Number two, the reason for the threat is understood by the prophet's presentation of a well-known image, the day of the Lord. So 
The reason for the threat. The threat's coming. Why are we being threatened? We have God. Well, Joel says, the great day of the Lord is upon us. Now, Joel's twisting this image because the image of the great day of the Lord is one that we celebrate, right? We celebrate Jesus Christ as bringing the great day of the Lord when he reads in Luke chapter 4 and, and reads from Isaiah and tells the synagogue, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's all about the great day of the Lord coming, this wonderful time. But Joel twists the image and says, look, the great day of the Lord is when God comes to set all things right, but Israel, you're not in the right. For some time, Israel, you've been under the impression that you're God's chosen people, which you are, but that that means you have some sort of superiority over others, which you don't. You have taken the rituals that God has given us to help us know we are in right relationship and you've externalized them. You're, you're going through the motions without allowing it to truly impact your heart, which is the whole point. God wants your heart. God doesn't want your sacrifice, your fasting, your praising and praying for themselves. God wants these things because of what it offers us in our heart as individuals and as a people. If you just go through the motions, it makes them useless. And actually, it can do damage because going through the motions gives you the impression that you are in the right while you are doing things that are terribly wrong. And Israel is not... Ex is not uh, the only group of people who do these kinds of things. But Israel embodies it in the scriptures of the Old Testament, right? They, they oppress the poor, the widow, the orphan. They oppress the immigrant. They oppress people who are not of their people, who don't look like them, who don't dress like them, who don't practice the same rituals they do. They find themselves to be superior. They ignore them. They do damage all while praising God giving the impression that they are these faithful people. They've lost sight. The reason for the threat is real, Joel says. Number three, yet even now there is hope. Joel lifts up the hope that is before them. In an attempt to avoid this devastating fate, the prophet calls the people to return to God. This word return doesn't mean come back and, and be in a relationship with God in some new or different way. It means come back to where you were. Come back to the point where you left. Come back. Return. And what did they need to return to? What is it that they've been doing? What's, what's at the root of the problem? Well, we find a clue in the name of the prophet himself. You would pronounce it in Hebrew, Yoel, or Yoel. We say Joel because it's written J-O-E-L, and that's how we pronounce that. But Yoel means Jehovah is our God. Jehovah is our God. Jehovah is another way to say Yahweh. It's another way to say Lord. It's the God that's addressed by the Hebrew people. Yoel is our God. They have lost sight that it is the Lord that is their God. And they've turned themselves into gods. They're, they're doing this praising and, and things, but basically just to get what they want, right? So the people have come to place their hope in their ritual, not God. They've come to use the ritual to keep their place secure and their superiority. That's not what God wanted. And so they're, even now, Joel says, there's hope because they know the character of Jehovah, their God, 
Their character is merciful, compassionate, very patient, faithful in love, and forgiving. This is a very famous way to characterize God, and we'll talk about that more in a moment. Yet even now there's hope because of our God. And finally, number four, the return is not going to be by the people's terms. It's these kind of baseless and, and heartless, in a way, acts of devotion that have allowed them to drift. So it's not going to be those same rituals that bring them back. So when they gather together, if they start tearing their clothes and start fasting and, and start doing the things that they usually do anyway, God says, no, no. Not, no, don't rend your clothes. Don't tear your clothes. Rend or tear your heart. Not an outward sign that looks good to all the people who are witness. Do it in a way that only God is the witness. That shows your true devotion. When you're not doing it for yourself in any way, you're doing it solely for God. So don't worship through sacrifice and through fasting and prayer. These things are meaningless if we don't have the inward devotion. Rend your heart. And we got to understand that the people Israel did not set on a path to drift so far away because we don't do that. It happens because when you start forgetting why it is you do the things you do, when you get caught in the motions of your ritual and your tradition, you can get so caught up on just doing the things exactly as you've always done them rather than remember the meaning and the whole purpose for doing them in the first place, which is to change us inwardly. And so you can continue in these rituals and, and look like you're doing the part and start losing sight and losing your grip on the whole purpose and point before long you start to damage the relationship. You start doing things to people you're not supposed to do, and before long you're so far off the path you didn't even realize it. It's just been for a show, not necessarily out of some sort of intentional disobedience, but when you place your hope upon your ability to perform a tradition or ritual, you risk losing your heart and you risk losing the point. Slowly, this can happen, almost unnoticed. Joel calls upon the entire people to rend their hearts and return to God on God's terms. The entire people. So let's talk about rend your hearts. Because you're supposed to do that. We are supposed to do that. Basically, he's saying, don't stand up publicly and tear your clothes in some outward sign that everyone can see and, and instead tear it inwardly. Let's break our hearts open. The only way we break our hearts open is to truly see how far we've drifted away, how much damage is being done. Seeing things through God's perspective will break our hearts. So let us do that. Let us confront ourselves as individuals and as a church. You know, in Hebrew thought, the heart is where your will and desire reside. We use our mind or our head. We kind of think that how we, what we set out to do, our intentions are sourced here. Hebrews would say, no, it's sourced here. The prophet is imploring people don't make a show of your devotion and your will and your intent. Truly let your heart break open. The deepest part of what you think you want, of what you're intending to do. This isn't easy. It's not easy. And if we're honest, rending our hearts is not even desirable. 
Who wants to be brokenhearted? Who wants to open our eyes and see all the things that may leave us uncomfortable, may leave us brokenhearted, may leave us devastated? We don't want to see these things. In fact, we work pretty hard in our minds to rationalize, to keep ourselves from experiencing these things. We love to imagine that we have things figured out, don't we? Is it just me? I know I do. I like to think that I know exactly what's going on. Like Israel, I can fall into the trap of just playing the part. I can go through the religious checklist, so to speak. I can make sure that I connect to worship. I can make sure that I show up and be present and say hi, but not truly invest myself into the church, into the experience. Now, I can give something in the offering plate, but I'm going to rationalize why I don't have to give a full tithe, a full 10%, right? That's not what God really wants. That's, that's not fair or, you know, maybe one day when I'm making more money kind of thing. We, we do this. Or I pray every now and again. Or maybe I even open my Bible, but I'm not really considering what I'm reading or, or what it means or I just kind of read past the parts that challenge me. We have a terrible habit of doing these outward devotions to support ourselves. We go to worship to hear what it is we expect to hear. And if we don't hear it, well, we go somewhere else, right? Or we turn it off. Or, or we give of our resources, but then we hold back. Or maybe we only give when we're hearing what it is we want to hear. Right? We decide whether it's worthy to give it or not. We pray, but we spend a lot of time telling God what we want without ever asking God, God, what do you want? Or considering, or even listening. Spend all the time talking. And that's our prayer. Or we read our Bible. We read it really well so that we can memorize it and we can quote it. But we only quote it to push our point and agenda. Uh, we can quote it so well just to shut other people down when they challenge us. Or maybe we proof text, right? We take a little verse from this book and a verse from this book and a verse from this book and we put them together and we make a message and we say, look, see, it's in scripture, when really the intention of our message is not supported by scripture at all. That happens all the time. Or we take the message in scripture and we make it more palatable. Or we take it even worse to make ourselves feel superior to others, that we have the right to judge and condemn someone else. We seek to carry the name of God in our worship and in our faith, but we carry the name for our own vanity. We carry the name of God in vain. We carry the name of God to support what it is we want. I mean, let me ask you this. Can you think of one theological or political debate of our day? Can you think of one of those where God does not agree with you or where you do not agree with God? It's more difficult than you'd think for all of us. We don't, we don't do all these things out of spite or intentional disobedience. I mean, we, we don't. We've never, we never set out to drift so far off course, Right? It happens. It happens if we're not intentionally seeking to be aware of if and when it's happening. We never desired to slowly craft the image of God to basically be a more powerful version of ourselves. But yet it's happened so many times. 
And this kind of thing, it happens to all of us and it happens slowly. We have to be diligent and disciplined to be aware of when it's happening. And this goes, this goes for us as individuals and as the church too. I mean, right now, friends, our denomination is headed toward a split. There are people in the family of God called United Methodists that are seeking to break apart from other family members over an argument. This didn't happen overnight. This divide has happened slowly, and perhaps we've reached the point of no return. Distance, division, broken relationship, they, they just they take time to develop. And if we're not intentional at being aware of where it's happening, before we know we can reach the point where, that we've reached, we have to all consider that we may not have things figured out as well as we think we do. That we may be wrong. That we're still learning. We don't know it all yet. That we're so focused on having the right answer to the question that we haven't even bothered to wonder if we're even asking the right question. So many of our problems stem from asking the wrong question in the first place. And maybe we just need to consider that maybe we're all in error, every one of us. Now right now, there might be a part of you that's saying, well, yeah, there are, there are people who need to be asking if they're in error. There are people that, that are wrong and they need, to, they need to spend time with that. Friends, that is you seeking to uplift yourself. What if we're all wrong? I mean, that's possible, isn't it? It was for Israel in Joel's day. And maybe it's possible in ours. Joel had a tall task, and I do not envy it. How do you help an entire nation of people understand that they've all gotten off the path? Joel doesn't just call together the priests. Joel says, get everybody. Joel says, get the elderly who were usually excluded from that kind of demand. Get the really young. Get the bride and the groom. Bring them all together. They're usually excluded from this type of thing, but not this time because we're all in this error together. We need to come and rend our hearts. Sadly, it usually takes a cataclysmic event for this type of thing to happen. In their day, it was an army of locusts or people. I don't know. In our day, it could be COVID. I remember September 11, 2001 being one of those moments. You probably have moments in your life or in your family's life when something terrible happened, someone almost had a disaster occur and suddenly the people that had argued the day before are now together and they don't care about that argument anymore. They're, they're there together as one in a way that they weren't the day before and it took a terrible event to bring us together and my friends, what if it didn't need to take a terrible event to do this? What if we just allowed our hearts to break by being aware of what we're doing and remembering what we're doing to each other. And yet, in the midst of all this that we've done to ourselves and each other, yet even now, there is hope. There's a great hope in the promise of God. Lent is a time for us to come together. 
to return in our relationship to God as our God and to return to one another as sister and brother. We mark this time with outward signs of fasting and discipline, but the outward sign is meaningless if we are not rending our hearts on the inside and rending our whole heart. We do this because we have faith in our God who is merciful, compassionate, very patient, faithful in love and forgiving. We know this character of God so clearly because it's mentioned in the Bible verbatim over 20 times. It all comes from Exodus 34. If you remember in the Exodus story, the people of Israel way back at the beginning of their story as an entire people were released, were freed from the bondage of oppression and slavery in Egypt. They went out into the wilderness for the 40 years to learn what life's going to be like outside of the routines that they knew as slaves. They're now learning their new identity and they enter into a ceremony at Mount Sinai with God. And the ceremony is the exact same things as a marriage because there's a purpose to this kind of unity and commitment and covenant. So they go and they're at Mount Sinai and they're there for a year and they're receiving the terms of the covenant and what we call the Ten Commandments. And Moses is up on Mount Sinai while the people are down below. And in the midst of the ceremony, as the ceremony's happening, the people are down there breaking the first two commandments. They're being unfaithful. They've made an idol. They're worshiping something else. And in that moment, God is, is ready to bring the consequences of breaking a covenant, which are, are not good. And instead, he and Moses engage, and through that, the character of God is revealed. God is merciful, compassionate, very patient, faithful in love, and forgiving. Even though they are breaking the covenant, God remains faithful. In our unfaithfulness, God remains faithful. And in our unfaithfulness, we return to God. And in our unfaithfulness to one another, we return together. Through the inspiration of God, Joel is reminding the people who their God is. God is just. And God is merciful, compassionate, very patient, faithful in love and forgiving. Even then, there is hope. Even in the days of Joel, their hope is in the midst of a long history, a span of being unfaithful in worship and insincere covenanting with God. Friends, Yet, even now, in the midst of division and strife and struggle and doubt and all the evidence of our unfaithfulness and the pain we've caused each other and the pain we've caused the world in the name of the church and the name of God, there is hope. There's hope because God accepts our return. God even aids us in the return process. And through the return, God transforms our hearts that we may rend them completely and be restored into right relationship both with God and with one another that we can be the church as we were intended to be. It's never too late with our faithful God. Yet, even now, there is hope. And praise God for this hope. God is ready to receive your return, to revive your hearts and lives, that you may participate in transformation within and be a part of the transformation of the world around you and through you to bring resurrection 
to all of this creation, both here and now and forevermore. So let us rend our hearts this Lenten season. Let us re-examine our relationship with God and each other. Let us begin the journey of return as we come and reclaim the promise once more. Amen. We thank you for worshiping with us. And it is our hope that through the Holy Spirit, you have felt the touch of God upon your life. If you would like to know more about our church and its ministries, please visit our website at sellersburgumc.com.